Welcome to Pharmacy to Dose, the critical care podcast, a member of the Pharmacy Podcast Network. And I'm your host, Nick Peters. Wherever you are and however you are listening, thank you. Now, this is the Literature Review series where I collaborate with up-and-coming pharmacists, pharmacy residents, and pharmacy students. We all know how hard it is to keep up with the literature, so let us help. Now, to articles published in November and December of 2021 is our focus today, and I am joined by two excellent guest hosts, and we want to work to highlight some of the most notable research studies and publications kind of for everybody, especially focusing on pharmacists and giving out our, our colleagues and peers some shout outs for all their hard work. So today I'm joined by two current PGY1 residents, Callie Brooks and Andy Jadis. Now Callie is currently a PGY1 pharmacy resident at the UNC Medical Center in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. She was born and raised in Nashville, Tennessee and attended the University of Tennessee Health Science Center for Pharmacy School. And she will be staying at UNC to complete her PGY2 in oncology next year. And Andy received a Doctor of Pharmacy degree from the University of Iowa College of Pharmacy, and he is currently a PGY1 pharmacy resident at the Mayo Clinic Hospital in Rochester, Minnesota. He will also be staying on at Mayo next year to complete a PGY2 in critical care. So Andy, Callie, how are you both doing? Doing great, Nick. It's a warm, sunny day here in Rochester, Minnesota. Uh, it's nice to see the sun. I'm hoping to get my vitamin D levels up uh, over this next week. So I think we're finally over that bump where here in the Midwest, uh, the weather's starting to get a little bit warmer. And spring has also sprung here in Chapel Hill. So it's been a good day so far to start out the week. Now, Callie, do we think spring has sprung because the Wicked Witch of North Carolina has finally retired? And for those who are unaware, we are talking about Coach K. So, Callie, let us know, are you a UNC fan? What's the what's the vibe in Chapel Hill right now? Even though we didn't win the national championship, I think, um, honestly, nothing could beat the win against Duke in the Final Four. Uh, I think that might have been sweeter than a national championship. So, people are still really excited here in Chapel Hill. And I've definitely become a really big fan. I think this is a great year to move to Chapel Hill, in my opinion. You know, I, I don't think a lot of people know I was actually at the game where where UNC beat Duke in the Final Four. And the thing that stood out to me was two things. So there were a lot of Duke fans, adult Duke fans, that had light up devil horns and jerseys with no undershirts. So I think that might have set them up to to lose and for failure to begin with. So yes, every time Duke loses, an angel gets its wings. So I don't know what happens when Coach K retired as well. But we're very excited about that. Um, now, I uh, for those who may have heard, we have a couple dogs in the background here, so I'm sorry in advance if you hear my uh, my two dogs, Franklin and Eleanor, barking. Um, now, do do either of you have any animals? Yeah, Nick, uh, my girlfriend and I uh, adopted a dog roughly about three and a half, four years ago, and uh, we moved in here and, and Rochester brought it, brought us with us, and uh, you know, of course, we got her during pharmacy school and. Uh, quite an adventure it's been. Yeah, wait, wait, wait. So, yeah, pharmacy school is not hard enough, right? Let's go ahead and make it even harder and have animals to be responsible for. So, is there like a backstory to this? What what brought? Are you just an animal lover? Which I, I mean, I fully support. We're a pro dog pod here. Yeah, definitely. Uh, no, my my girlfriend is a dog lover herself. Uh, my dad's actually allergic to dogs, so that's uh, that was the challenge of uh, do, you know, do you pick the the future, uh, you know 
woman you live with the rest of your life or your, your father. And, but no, we were uh, out at Village Inn for breakfast, which is a very classy, uh, uh, you know, breakfast place, just like IHOP in Iowa City. And kind of looked at each other and uh, we were going through some uh, the dogs in our local shelter back in Illinois and came across Maya and uh, the rest is history. We actually drove back home that same weekend and uh, went and picked her up and uh, we've enjoyed having her ever since. Oh, I so, love that. I began at the Village Inn. <laughs> <laughs> the Village Inn. That sounds like the Midwest version of Waffle House. Is true or false? It is. I'd definitely say it's not not as good, uh, but you know, still, still one of the, the classics when you need a good skillet or omelet on the weekend. As much as we could talk about diners and doggos and Duke losing the triple D's here, I think we should probably get into the real reason that everyone is joining us today. And let's go ahead and get started with our six pack of studies. And there are two awesome, awesome studies that we're going to start with. So Andy, why don't you take the lead on a, talking about a medicine that we commonly use in emergency situations? Yeah, definitely. I'm sure, as most people know, survival following out-of-hospital cardiac arrest is unfortunately low, strikingly around 10% in 2019, making the search to find interventions to improve outcomes a major focus for researchers and clinicians alike. Despite the current literature having conflicting results regarding the role of calcium in cardiac arrest, it is commonly administered in practice. Given calcium plays an important role in cardiac muscle contraction, it may improve vinyl and vasopressor effects. Therefore, the authors of this study hypothesized that it may improve return of spontaneous circulation, or ROF, in adults with out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. The calcium for out-of-hospital arrest trial was a placebo-controlled, double-blind, randomized clinical trial completed in Denmark, published in JAMA this past fall. Slightly different to our medical system, Denmark uses a two-tiered emergency medical service, including an ambulance and a physician-manned mobile emergency care unit that respond to all cardiac arrests. Adults with cardiac arrest who received one dose of epinephrine were included while patients with a clinical indication for calcium, such as hypocalcemia or hyperkalemia, were importantly excluded. Patients were randomized to receive 735 milligrams of calcium chloride or saline control that was given as a rapid bolus right after the first dose of epinephrine and repeated once again after the second dose of epinephrine. The primary outcome of interest was return of spontaneous circulation defined as no further need for chest compressions after at least 20 minutes, and the key secondary outcomes were survival at 30 days and survival with favorable neurologic function at 30 days, which was defined by the modified Rankin scale from a score of zero, meaning no disability, to a score of three, which would represent a moderate disability where a patient would need assistance to walk. The trial was stopped early, surprisingly, by an independent data safety and monitoring committee due to a single of harm that occurred in the calcium group after 383 patients were viewed. Which is important to note, as the study was an additional 300 patients short of actually uh, ideal power calculation. At baseline, the mean age of the patients was 68, while 82% of them experienced an in-home cardiac arrest, while 75% of patients initially had a non-shockable rhythm. Other characteristics were similar at baseline. The median time from cardiac arrest to trial drug administration was 18 minutes, which compares similarly to other out-of-hospital arrest uh, trials, such as the paramedic true trial with epinephrine. And 73% of the patients received two calcium doses, which would equate to a total dose of 1.5 grams. The primary outcome of sustained ROS occurred in 19% of the calcium group and 27% in the saline group, showing a trend towards harm with the calcium arm. The secondary outcomes, survival at 30 days, occurred in 5.2% of patients receiving calcium versus 9.1% in the saline group. And as well with the neurologic outcomes, 
similarly poor uh, results for calcium at a rate of uh, 3.6% versus 7.6% for those patients that had favorable neurologic outcomes. Both these showed trends towards harm, although not statistically significant. And later secondary outcomes, beyond 90 days, it actually did show that uh, statistical harm for calcium in the neurologic outcome arm group. Given the trial was stopped early, these results should be interpreted with caution. The main adverse effect of calcium was hypercalcemia, which occurred in 74% of the calcium group versus two in the saline group, to no surprise. The authors theorized that the signal of harm from the calcium administration could have been due to a phenomenon termed Stoneheart, leading to where an increase in oxidative stress occurs as destruction of cardiac mitochondria happens due to hypercalcemia. In summary, among adults with out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, IV or IO calcium compared with saline did not improve outcomes. Although this was on the although this was an out-of-hospital arrest uh, study, these results had a great deal of knowledge regarding our role of calcium, or more so the lack of role, I should say, in cardiac arrest. Given the little amount of RCTs that are done in this area, clinicians are often left having to extrapolate the findings from out-of-hospital arrest to in-hospital arrest as well. As the authors noted, in the U.S., 30% of in-hospital arrests actually, uh, patients actually receive calcium despite this unclear role of benefit. Based on this study, my personal bottom line would be to leave out calcium of our, of our toolbox for cardiac arrest and to save calcium for those times when it's truly indicated, such as hypocalcemia, hyperkalemia, and medication toxicity. Instead, we should be focusing our attention toward the proven interventions for ACLS, such as early CPR, defibrillation, and then, of course, identifying our reversible causes of arrest, our lovely H's and T's, which for any of our uh, critical care residents, definitely something you got to get tattooed on the on your forearm just to have it for a reference. But Nick, I'd be curious to hear what your thoughts on these are on, are on these findings. I think it's one of those when when people come in, especially with an, an out of hospital cardiac arrest, we want to try to say that we did everything right. And so if it's a non shockable rhythm, right, it's just epi, epi and compressions. And so I think a lot of times we will try to do all the other things like we'll give some bicarb, we'll give some calcium. Maybe we see, you know, the QT looking long I mean, maybe give some mag or things like that. And so I think it's one of those things where sometimes like we might try to do too much. Um, like when you're in your experience, Andy, in your like um, code blues or um, cardiac arrest scenarios, do you feel like you're commonly asked like for calcium, like by, you know, by the code team? Yeah, I think this is a, a, a case even in our shockable, non-shockable rhythms that uh, sometimes will be called out by the code leader. And it's one of those, those cases, um, you know, if they're really adamant on wanting it, I'm not necessarily gonna, in that heat of the moment going to push and say, no, this is an absolute uh, something I'm going to stand up to. But in practice, something they always have circled back on as far as what is the rule of this? Why are we doing this? And I think it's something that more clinicians are aware of that just giving calcium chloride isn't going to correct the, the issue at hand. Uh, I would comment, though, of course, for times that it is truly indicated, uh, hyperkalemia, I've definitely seen patients that are in any kind of ventricular rhythm, and it's uh, almost brought them back uh, instantly, which has been pretty remarkable to see in the emergency department. So I think that just further highlights that in those times where it is truly indicated that we're uh, making sure that we almost are aware of that and keeping that in mind, just not to overutilize it when we don't have that clear benefit. 
And I think this is one of those things. If you're a learner, you've you've inevitably had like your ACLS topic discussion. And I'm sure your preceptor said something of the realm of like, there's not a lot of evidence for most of this ancillary treatment, but we will still do it because of mantras and things. And so now it's kind of nice that we're slowly getting studies to maybe support or like disprove like in this scenario of just blindly giving some of those ancillary meds in in the code card. So I think this was really good for those wondering, you know, it's a Denmark trial because this would never, ever get approved by any US IRB. Um, So really interesting. Yeah, this was a a trial that I think will definitely change some of the uh, management of some of our ACLS patients, especially in the in the ED, since this was an out of hospital cardiac arrest. So let's kind of switch gears here. So we were focusing big time on the heart. So Callie, come in and talk about arguably an organ that is the most important in the body and drugs to treat one of these uh, emergencies. Absolutely. So this was actually a PGY2 residency research project by Dr. Sarah Saldana and colleagues at Health First Homes Regional Medical Center. So major kudos to Dr. Saldana who published the comparison of clavidipine and nicardipine for acute blood pressure reduction and hemorrhagic strokes in neurocritical care last fall. So while hemorrhagic strokes occur far less frequently than ischemic strokes, they are associated with higher mortality rates. And because complications like re-bleeding and hematoma expansion are known to lead to poor outcomes, blood pressure control is a critical aspect of care after stroke onset. While the selection of systolic blood pressure goal is a different discussion for a different day, nicardipine and clavidipine are two calcium channel blocking agents available as titratable infusions to help us meet the SCP goal that is selected by the team. And guideline recommendations don't specify preference for one of these agents over the other. Therefore, the selection is largely going to be driven by formulary availability and restrictions at your institutions, as well as key differences between these two agents. So clopidopine has a more rapid onset and much shorter half-life compared with nicardipine. In terms of titratability, per institution protocol, nicardipine was titrated every five minutes, whereas clopidopine could be titrated more quickly, as often as 90 seconds initially. But the titration schedule was more complicated as the interval for titrating increased as SVP got closer to the goal. Clopidopine's ability to be titrated more rapidly is why it may be preferred by providers in hopes of reaching SCP goals sooner. In terms of actual preparation of these products, clavidipine is carried in a milky liquid emulsion, which provides 2K cals per ml, and nicardipine is notorious for delivering a high volume of fluid at standard concentrations. So this was a single-center retrospective cohort study comparing clavidipine with nicardipine in time to goal SCP exclusively in the hemorrhagic stroke population. Key exclusions were traumatic hemorrhages, concurrent continuous antihypertensives, or if patients received less than an hour infusion of the study drug. Agent was selected at the discretion of the physician, and if patients included 60 received nicardipine and 29 received clavidipine. Investigators compared these cohorts directly and also performed a propensity score matching to adjust for baseline differences for the primary outcome. Moving to the results, the median time to goal SVP was 30 minutes with nicardipine and 45 minutes with clavidipine, and this difference did not reach statistical significance. Time to goal SVP was the same, 30 minutes versus 45 minutes, 
when comparing the propensity score match cohort. Key secondary outcome findings were that the need for other antihypertensives was similar between groups. The total volume from infusion was significantly higher with nicardipine as expected at about 1,400 milliliters compared with a much more modest 330 mLs with clobidipine. And medication acquisition cost per infusion for clobidipine was about five times higher than that of nicardipine. There were no significant difference between percentage of time at goal, all-cause mortality, 30-day readmission or length of stay, or re-bleeding between groups. And from a safety standpoint, rebound hypertension and bradycardia occurred nearly twice as often with clobidipine compared with nicardipine, but there was no difference in AKI occurrence. Notably, clobidipine had a numerically higher rate of hematoma expansion of 25% compared with nicardipine, which was 17%. So this was not statistically significant. One thing I wanted to highlight in light of these findings, this study failed to attain the estimated sample size and may have been underpowered to detect the difference between these groups, which the authors noted. So in terms of takeaway, this retrospective review of patients with hemorrhagic stroke found that nicardipine appeared to be associated with similar time to goal SVP and percentage of time at the goal compared with clobidipine, despite slower titrating instructions. Additionally, there were no significant differences in secondary outcomes. So kind of thinking about these findings as pros and cons between the agents, clobidipine had significantly less total volume administered, while nicardipine appeared to result in significantly less rebound hypertension, less bradycardia, and reduced cost compared with clobidipine. The study may not have met power to detect a difference between these two agents, but it's reassuring and honestly surprising that these investigators found that patients receiving nicardipine had a numerically shorter time to goal SVP at 30 minutes compared with 45 minutes for those receiving clobidipine. This study is certainly hypothesis generating, and ideally we could have larger sample sizes and even randomized controlled trials to help inform our decisions for blood pressure lowering infusions following hemorrhagic stroke. But whether or not your institution uses nicardipine or clobidipine as its antihypertensive workhorse, I think these findings are reassuring that we can achieve SVP goals in our patients in a timely fashion with either agent. Callie, when you first like started reading and going into this article, did did you expect the like did the results you ended up finding, did you expect those going in or were these a little bit you mentioned it was surprising? Because I agree that it was surprising. What what did you kind of expect to see? Yeah, so I think we always think about clobidipine as we know that you can titrate it sooner and more quickly, and it has kind of a more rapid onset. And so I think I even like went back and double checked the PK of clobidipine and nicardipine after reading this because it was the opposite of what I expected. I would have expected those times to SVP goal to be the opposite for these two agents. So it was definitely surprising um, that they were able to titrate the nicardipine and get to goal sooner, um, even though it wasn't statistical. There was no statistical difference there. You know, the, the only thing that I could think of as somebody who is like at the bedside when some of these drips get started, and this was like a retrospective study is, um, I would be curious, I think that ultimately the titration, like parameters behind clavidipine, I think they can be confusing enough for a bedside nurse that I'm wondering if we actually did like the aggressive dose increases that like they require because you basically double your dose every 90 seconds or so, um, which is a completely different 
like titration parameters than we do nicardipine, which is like, you know, every, you know, you go up by two and a half to five, every, every five to 15 minutes. So I'm wondering if that played a part only because this is so strange, right? The whole argument for clavidipine is that you would get your blood pressure goal quicker, or that's the thought behind it. So really interesting. It definitely supports uh, a lot of the hospital P and T committees. I'm sure this is going to be, this is going to be a support to try to, to try to reduce the number of agents on formulary. Um, but yeah, you shouted her out. This is a, a really awesome study. Glad this got published. We have almost zero head-to-head studies on any of these antihypertensives and in, in um, neurologic emergencies. So it's nice that that we finally have one to kind of hang our hat on a little bit. So awesome, awesome job. I completely agree with what you said. So we're kind of all over the place here in our six pack of studies here. So Andy, why don't you talk to us a little bit about um, corticosteroid dosing in COPD, which especially in, in our ICU patients can be a little bit of a controversial topic. Yeah, definitely. I think anything with steroids and dosing in the ICU population, especially anything with the lungs, can be highly controversial. So definitely the old age debate as far as steroid dosing in, in, these patient, or in this patient population. Uh, this study that I'll be talking about was a, a little bit background on it. was that systemic corticosteroids are a mainstay of treatment for COPD exacerbations to reduce treatment failure and length of hospital stay. The 2022 gold guidelines that are recently updated recommend a fixed dose of 40 milligrams prednisone for five days, although the evidence to support the 40 milligram dose is limited. Multiple retrospective studies suggest much higher doses are commonly used in practice. The purpose of this study was to compare a personalized dosing regimen using a five-factor scale to the conventional fixed dose of steroids for treatment of acute exacerbation of COPD, or AECOPD. The trial was a prospective, randomized, multi-center, open-label study completed in China and published in CHESS this past fall. Patients greater than or equal to 40 years old admitted to the hospital with AECOPD, defined as an acute worsening of respiratory symptoms, were included. Exclusion criteria included asthma, use of corticosteroids in the previous 30 30 days, radiographic evidence of pneumonia, pneumothorax, or pulmonary embolism, and need for mechanical ventilation. The personalized dosing score was calculating using five factors. The anti-Asian type, which uses criteria we're more used to seeing to determine the need to initiate antibiotics and AESOPD, such as symptoms related to dyspnea, increased sputum production, and sputum purulence. The COPD or CAT score, which assesses severity of symptoms, and we are used to seeing as a criteria to determine gold ABCD grouping to guide therapy selection. Previous uh, prednisone use, specifically a, a higher dose greater than 80 milligrams per day. And inflammatory, mar- inflammatory markers such as CRP or eosinophils, of which higher eosinophils have been shown to correlate the responsiveness to steroids. And lastly, blood gas analysis to assess for the severity of respiratory acidosis and hypercapnia. This resulted in a scoring ranging from negative one to four based off these five criteria that was used to calculate the personal dose based on patient body weight. Patients were randomized in a one-to-one manner to 40 milligrams prednisone equivalent for five days versus personalized dosing and were stratified based on site and gold grade. All patients received appropriate background therapy with inhaled agents and antibiotics for seven days. The primary endpoint was a combination of in-hospital treatment failure, which included a composite of death, need for any mechanical ventilation, additional treatment escalation, or medium-term failure, which was 
the same criteria, just in, within 180 days of discharge, corticosteroid adverse events were also uh, assessed. Given the open label nature, two, physici two physicians were each blinded to treatment allocation and were charged with assessing patients for, uh, daily for treatment failure. To be determined a failure, both physicians had to agree on the patient disposition and treatment after independent review. For results, 1,060 patients uh, with AOCOPD were screened, while only 248 underwent randomization. The greatest reason for exclusion criteria was recent use of steroids in the previous 30 days. Average age was 69.9 years, and more than 75% of patients had severe or very severe COPD based on FEV 1% predicted, which was marked as a, a less than 50% on that. 70% of patients were gold grade D, with 40% experience of COPD exacerbation in the past year resulting in hospitalization. So fair to say that these patients were, were definitely more on the severe end of the COPD spectrum. The patients in the personalized dose arm received a higher medium total dose of 280 milligrams versus 200 milligrams in the fixed arm. Failure therapy occurred statistically less in the personalized arm at a rate of 27.6% versus 48.8% in the fixed dose group. Additional reductions also occurred in in-hospital in treatment failure and after one month after discharge. But this result was not statistically different in medium-term failure, which was that measurement at six months. Similar rates of adverse events occurred related to hyperglycemia and those other pesky uh, adverse effects we think of for our steroids during hospitalization, such as insomnia and GI bleeding. Interestingly, when investigators examined the relationship between dose and outcome in the personalized dose arm, increased failure occurred in patients who received 40 milligrams or less at a rate of 44.4% versus 22.9% that received greater than 40 milligrams. The authors concluded that personalized treatment reduces risk of treatment failure, specifically when patients receive doses greater than 60 milligrams. My personal takeaway from this study is that further validation is needed regarding the use of risk scores to guide dosing of corticosteroids for treatment of acute exacerbation of COPD. Although this study supports that higher initial doses calculated based on the personalized approach may be helpful. Important to note that the study was underpowered to detect differences in adverse effects with using higher glucocorticoid dosing, which it would need to be further assessed before adopting higher fixed doses of prednisone. I don't, know, I don't know about you, Nick, but I think this study suggests the old age debate on steroid dosing is still ongoing. These results make you short of breath? <laughs> yeah, steroid, steroid dosing, you said it well. It is, it is an extremely controversial, a very anecdotal practice in a lot of sense. I think all of us who have looked at the gold guidelines that recommend 40 milligrams a day, but then you go in the hospital, people are getting 80 Q6 for their exacerbations. I think it brings up to questions as to whether, you know, is 40 milligrams the catch-all for everybody? I think we agree probably not. Um, and there's a really kind of landmark um, article in 2014 from Ty Kaiser and, and colleagues over in Colorado that look at like adverse effects from steroids and kind of found that maybe our max dose should be about 240 milligrams. So I agree that we need some sort of personalization because the person who comes in with a COPD exacerbation in the ED right, that we treat and may get discharged probably needs a different per, a different regimen than somebody who is getting continuous BiPAP and getting admitted to the ICU in these scenarios. So I think this study does a really good job of letting us know, hey, 
The one size fits all is probably not best, which goes along with so much more in medicine we've heard about. But I still kind of have questions as to what, how we figure out what our what the best regimen will be. And I think this is a great this is a great idea and a great example. Um, but obviously, probably a little bit complicated for us to do like at the bedside themselves. So I think it's a great study to talk about, hey, one size fits all, probably not great, but I think it's one of those, you said it best, hypothesis generating in terms of our um, future studies and things. So Callie, there was an awesome New England Journal of Medicine article that it looks at taking out race from a lot of our um, renal uh, dosing, like estimate, kidney estimate equations. So give us a little insight as to what this study found and how we can apply this moving forward. Absolutely, Nick. So I was really excited to see the publication of this study by the Chronic Kidney Disease Epidemiology Collaboration looking critically at the use of race and the equations used to estimate glomerular filtration rate, or DFR. And the investigators here have aimed to identify how medicine can be more equitable across patient-specific factors, specifically related to race. So there's been increasing scrutiny of the inclusion of race and estimation equations and other algorithms in medicine. As the author states, race is a social and not a biologic construct and its inclusion in such equations ignores diversity within and among racial groups and may contribute to systemic racism in medicine. The widespread implementation of electronic health records and capability of automated clinical laboratory reporting has allowed for the use of more complex equations to estimate renal function like the eGFR equation. However, GFR is estimated using race among many other factors. Some institutions have omitted race from the computation of EGFR to try to address this inequality, but there are no data assessing the accuracy of that approach using measured GFR to validate it. National kidney disease organizations recommend replacing the currently used EGFR equations with equations that are accurate, inclusive, standardized across laboratories, and exclude race. So this study aimed to compare and evaluate the accuracy of our three currently used GFR equations and newly developed equations using the measured GFR of a cohort of over 4,000 patients. The three currently available equations incorporate factors like age, sex, and race, along with serum concentrations of endogenous filtration markers. The markers that are used are creatinine, which we're all familiar with, and it is a protein made exclusively by our muscle cells and a marker that's getting more attention recently, cystatin C, which is a protein made by all nucleated cells, not just muscle. So the current EGFR equation that is recommended for staging of CKD is the EGFR using serum creatinine. The EGFR equation that incorporates serum cystatin C is currently recommended by KDGO as confirm confirmatory testing for EGFR, although not very commonly used. And interestingly, it does not use race as a factor. A third GFR estimating equation that factors in both serum creatinine and cystatin C exists, but is rarely used as well. New equations were proposed, which utilize age, sex, and race as factors, or only age and sex as factors. Additionally, they included creatinine, cystatin C, or both filtration markers in their equations to estimate GFR. 
So the authors made a lot of comparisons and evaluations, and I'm only going to be able to focus on a few key takeaways from this study. Um, but the current GFR equation that uses creatinine, age, sex, and race overestimated measured GFR in black patients by about four mils per minute. And when the adjustment for black race was omitted from the same equation, the calculated eGFR underestimated measured GFR by about seven mils per minute. Well, these are small margins. They could represent the difference in one CKD stage or whether or not a patient receives a 50% dose reduction of a medication or even no longer qualifies to receive a medication due to falling below a key threshold like 30 mils per minute. They also found that the new eGFR equations that incorporated both creatinine and cystatin C and omit race as a factor are more accurate and led to smaller differences in black and non-black patients. While this equation is not yet the silver bullet for accurately and inclusively estimating GFR in all of our patients, regardless of race, these findings can inform ongoing discussions on the improvement of eGFR equations that are used in clinical practice. Unfortunately, I don't have time to go into everything today, but the authors also projected the prevalence of CKD and GFR stages using both the current and new equations, and I really encourage everyone to check this article out so you can explore all their findings. This study is an example of a step in the right direction and the work that's being done to address systemic racism that's present in medicine, and I'm excited to see more like it. While using equations to estimate renal function is an imperfect science in general, I look forward to following this discussion on how we can make improvements to establish equations for estimating renal functions that are more equitable, as these estimations can have significant impacts on CKD diagnosis and management, as well as dosing adjustments for a number of medications, as we all know as pharmacists. Really, really well said. I, I really don't have a whole lot extra to add because, um, A, I'm getting familiar with these new with these new equations for equations that aren't, you know, the cockcroft galt creatinine clearance equation. Um, but the fact that these are getting published, right, in, in journals like New England Journal, right, arguably the biggest one in all of medicine, um, I think it's awesome. And I actually um, noticed in our EHR that they actually, when you look at like the BMP section, you know, a lot of times you have creatinine and then it has like estimated creatinines and things. And I actually just saw it randomly this morning. It said, you know, non-race GFR. So it seems like this is hopefully becoming more and more um, into the mainstream, but definitely um, a really good review and something important for kind of all of us to to re- um, kind of learn and, and remember kind of going forward for other kind of initiatives here. Now, it wouldn't be a literature review series if we didn't bring in a DOAC and come in with some new awesome anticoagulants here. So Andy, why don't you have the very easy um, job of describing the use of anticoagulation post-TAVR. And, and for those who, who don't know, I was kidding. This is a extremely kind of complicated topic here, but uh, Andy, take the floor. Yeah. Yeah, Nick, I would definitely agree. I think uh, this patient population specifically with TAVRs and our newer uh, bioprosthetics uh, valves that these patients can get are, are quite complex and and in our placement and then additionally our anticoagulation uh, plans for them. But a little bit of background on this data from the Galileo trial, which compared rivaroxaban plus aspirin uh, to DAPS and the Atlantis trial, uh, which compared apixaban plus aspirin versus aspirin alone 
Trials did not support DOAC use post-TAVR in patients without an indication for anticoagulation due to an increased mortality seen with DOAC. These patients should be managed with either short periods of DAPs of three to six months or lifelong single antiplatelet therapy to prevent valve thrombosis and stroke. For our listeners, it's important that we clarify that this population, uh, where there is no indication for anticoagulation post-TAVR, is different from the population we'll be discussing for the remainder of this study. Adoxaban has been shown to be non-inferior to warfarin and atrial fibrillation, although the Engage AF-TIMI-48 trial did not include patients with TAVR. Therefore, the role of DOACs in patients with AFib after TAVR requiring anticoagulation has yet to be studied in a randomized controlled trial. That brings us to the Envisage TAVI AF trial, which was a prospective randomized open-label non-inferior trial across 14 different countries published in the New England Journal of Medicine this last fall. Adult patients with atrial fibrillation and TAVR were included. Key exclusion criteria included any conditions that confer a higher bleeding risk. This included things such as having an active uh, peptic ulcer in the past 90 days or having malignancy that seemed high risk of bleeding. Additionally, patients were excluded if they needed to be on dual antipilot therapy uh, beyond the initial three-month trial, uh, trial period post-TAVR. Patients were randomized 12 hours to 7 days after TAVR, either a doxman 60 milligrams daily to 30 milligrams daily for reduced renal function versus warfarin with a goal INR of 2 to 3 based on local dosing practices. During randomization, patients were stratified according to scent placement and if meeting criterion for an adoxman dose adjustment. The primary outcome was the incidence of net adverse clinical events defined as a composite of death from any cause, myocardial infarction, ischemic stroke, systemic thromboembolism, valve thrombosis, or major bleeding as defined by the ISTH criteria. The primary safety outcome was the major bleeding criterion used for the ISTH definition. The upper bound of the non-inferiority margin for this trial for Adoxman was set at a hazard ratio of 0.38, or sorry, of 1.38. For results of this study, 1,426 patients underwent randomization. At baseline, 99% of these patients had atrial fibrillation prior to receiving TAVR. The mean age of randomization was 82.1 years, and time from TAVR to randomization was 68 hours. The mean CHADS2 VAS score was 4.5, and concomitant antiplatelets were used in 48% of the patients. The rate of the composite primary outcome was 17.3 per 100-person years for a doxpan and 16.6 per 100-person years in the, vitamin, or in the warfarin group, with a hazard ratio of 1.5 and a 95% confidence interval that met that pre-specified non-inferior and for inferiority margin. Rates of major bleeding were increased in the adoxazan group with a hazard ratio of 1.4 and a confidence interval that was statistically significant, which was mainly driven by an increase in gastrointestinal bleeding. Important to note, there was no difference in death from any cause, fatal bleeding, or intracranial hemorrhage between adoxazan and warfarin. There were no patients that experienced a valve thrombosis in this trial, signifying that risk overall for valve thrombosis relatively low in this population. In summary, adoxaban was non-inferior to warfarin for the composite primary outcome of adverse clinical events, but was associated with higher major bleeding. While robust data supporting DOAC use in patients with AFib after TAVR has yet to be seen, I think this study provides promising results regarding DOAC for the combined indication. 
An observational study using national registry data from a France, uh, France study was published in 2021 and actually found in patients with TAVR and concomitant need for anticoagulation a particularly major bleeding and hemorrhagic stroke benefit for patients that received TAVR, or sorry, that received DOAC with TAVR versus warfarin. Although it's important to note 55% of these patients received a PIXAVAN and 0% actually received a DOXAVAN. Personally, my bottom line would be from the study is it's, uh, it would be reasonable for patients who are previously taking a DOAC for AFib to continue their DOAC therapy after TAVR, given the finding of these results. It would be interesting to see if a PIXAVAN would have more favorable outcomes given uh, it tends to be our go-to DOAC in, pro in practice and was the main agent used in that France-registered trial that I had mentioned previously that showed decreased bleeding. For patients who were previously on warfarin for AFib prior to TAVR, it would be reasonable to continue warfarin for three months after TAVR and then consider a switch to DOAC based on shared decision-making with our patients. Nick, I don't know about you, but I know that this can definitely be a tricky situation. So did you have any other things to weigh on? Yeah, I think we're still learning a lot about our like anti-thrombotic and anticoagulant selections after TAVR. I think a lot of places, if you have no indication like for full anticoagulation, they're kind of going the more dual antiplatelet route. For those who have an indication, I think more and more are probably going towards that DOAC route and dropping one of your antiplatelet agents in that scenario here. Um, Whenever I see an order for a doxaban, my eyes always raise just because it's one of those that like you just never see. It's always strange that this is the drug that your kidneys can't be too good to use, which is just a phrase that I don't think we really hear very much. Um, and I think this kind of goes in line with some of the other like some of the other information that we have that, yes, it might improve our, I guess you'd say efficacy outcomes, right? Our composite outcomes. But most of the time that comes at a trade-off of increased bleeding risk. So I think we're still trying to figure out and land that plane on the very narrow runway of figuring out how do we help prevent some of those bad things and also not have people come in with major life-threatening bleeds as well. Um, so I think it's one of those that it's it's great information to kind of consider, but I don't think this is necessarily, at least for my takeaway, like a groundbreaking practice changing. I'm gonna I'm gonna drop what I'm doing, kind of change my whole management right away. And last but not least, so Callie, kind of come back in here and, and introduce us to a drug that I'm guessing most of us, and maybe this was just me, have never heard of before. All right. So staying on the anticoagulation train to bring us on home for our six-pack of studies, our final study is a phase two trial of Milvexian for the prevention of BTE, and it was published in New England. So DOAC, um, as we just heard with Andy's presentation, I've taken center stage and are generally preferred over warfarin for most indications. Still, they can be underutilized or underdosed in eligible patients due to concerns about the risk of bleeding. If you recall the clotting cascade, which I'm sure is a favorite to many of our listeners, wink, <laughs> wink, factor 11 is a part of our intrinsic pathway, activating factor 9 prior to the common pathway and playing a key role in thrombus growth but a minimal role in hemostasis, making it a promising target for DOAC therapy. The effects that we can expect from inhibition of factor 11 can be demonstrated by patients who have congenital factor 11 deficiency. 
So these patients are at lower risk of BTE and ischemic stroke, but rarely ex experience spontaneous bleeding. So Milvexian is a selective activated factor 11 inhibitor that is rapidly absorbed after oral administration and has a half-life of approximately 12 hours. In this proof of principle dose finding phase two trial, investigators compared the efficacy and safety of Milvexian and anoxaparin in patients undergoing elective total knee arthroplasty or TKA. So it was a randomized parallel group with blinded outcome adjudication to compare Milvexian with anoxaparin and patients and trial personnel were unaware of the Milvexian dose regimen, but investigators did not double dummy administration of the sub-Q anoxaparin injection. In terms of inclusion, patients 50 years and older undergoing unilateral TKA who are considered to be medically stable and appropriate candidates for VTE prophylaxis were enrolled. Main exclusions were renal function insufficient for anoxaparin use, history of severe hepatic dysfunction, previous BTE, or use of long-term antithrombotic therapy other than a baby aspirin. Participants were randomly assigned to one of seven parallel treatment groups, which included four twice-daily Molvexian regimens, two once-daily Molvexian regimens, and anoxaparin 40 milligrams once daily. And treatment was given for 10 to 14 days after surgery. The primary efficacy outcome was a composite of asymptomatic DVT confirmed by venography 10 to 14 days post-op, confirmed symptomatic CTE, and all-cause mortality. For our active comparator, 21% of patients receiving anoxaparin experienced CTE. And in patients receiving twice-daily Molvexian at increasing doses of 25, 50, 100, and 200 milligrams BID, the percentage of patients experiencing BTE decreased in a dose-dependent fashion as rates went from 21% using the lowest twice-daily dose to 11%, then 9%, and lastly, 8% with our highest twice-daily dose of 200 milligrams. The principal safety outcome defined as bleeding of any severity occurred in 4% of patients who received Milvexian as well as the same percentage of patients receiving a non And treatment adherence was very high and likely much higher than we would see outside of a clinical trial, as almost all patients had 80% or higher adherence, with 75% of patients being 100% adherent. Some key takeaways from this trial, Mobexian significantly reduced the incidence of BTE after elective TKA in a dose-dependent manner with both twice-daily and once-daily regimens. It did meet the a priori criteria for, for proof of efficacy when compared to once daily 40 milligram anoxaparin. But it's important to note that some centers use 30 milligrams Q12 hours as their standard prophylactic dose of anoxaparin, which was not a treatment arm in this trial. From a safety standpoint, bleeding episodes of any severity were similar between groups with clinically relevant bleeding occurring in 1% of the Milvexian group and 2% in anoxaparin treated patients. Overall, no bleeding, major bleeding episodes occurred in patients who received Milvexian. So again, this was a dose-finding phase two study to determine efficacy of Milvexian for treatment of preventing post-op BTE, and a second phase two trial examining its efficacy for secondary stroke prevention is ongoing. Results of both of these studies will inform the dose and indications that will be examined in the phase three trial. So although phase two trials have not started yet, this is an exciting finding to know that we may have 
an even more targeted direct oral anticoagulant agent for preventing BTEs to add to our DOAC arsenal. The thing I love most is that it's not a me too drug is that it's actually a different target. And so there's actually hope, I think, that we might be able to um, find new niches and actually be able to kind of use this in practice and not have a, you know, a medicine that works similar to a Pixaban and Rivaroxaban and things. So, um, yeah, I think it's... Uh, it's super interesting. You know, you mentioned this was a uh, phase two study. So we have some some ways to go before, you know, we might see it in our order queues um, or on home med lists. Um, but it's nice that we're still um, trying to find that that elusive, perfect anticoagulant, which I, uh, I think is still out there. All right. Well, we finished our six-pack of studies, so Callie, hang tight just a sec because Andy and I are going to have some ventilator blues here as we discuss a few pain, agitation, and delirium studies. So, Andy, why don't you take the lead here? Yeah, definitely. Uh, for all you uh, learners out there listening on to this, this, this first one we'll be talking today is a good one just to keep in your back pocket so that next time you have your infamous ICU uh, pain, agitation, delirium t discussion. Uh, with your preceptor and you have to draw all the different tables with all the different dosing and half-life and all those considerations for the, these agents that are very commonly used in our uh, critical ill patients. You bit said of that, wait, wait, Andy, you said that as somebody who did that extremely recently, true or false? Uh, you know, it comes up here and there. Uh, no, I know. I love pain, agitation, delirium, but no, not, I haven't, I've been out of the ICU as a PGY1 uh, since uh, October, but no, it's, a, it's definitely something that uh, after you've done it a few times, uh, you learn something new every time, definitely. Okay, take it away. I'm sorry, I had to. I had to clarify there. <laughs> yeah, no, no problem. Uh, opiates are a mainstay of analgosedation for critical ill patients requiring mechanical ventilation. Worldwide, the most common agents used are fentanyl and morphine. Fentanyl, with its shorter onset of action and increased lipophilicity, is hepatically metabolized, but may have a context-sensitive half-life with extended fusions, uh, leading to drug accumulation. In contrast, morphine has active metabolites dependent on renal function for clearance, which may alter time to liberation, and its known histamine release can, can cause increased hypotension. An open-label, two-center, cluster-randomized crossover trial, Casmento et al. compared continuous infusion fentanyl to morphine to assess ventilator-free and ICU-free days at day 28. In the 681 patients included in this analysis, Median ventilator-free days was significantly increased, favoring the fentanyl group with an increase in 0.8 days free from the vent. ICU-free days was also increased by 1.6 days in the fentanyl group. An interesting finding in a subgroup was this benefit was lost in elderly patients with fentanyl, which the authors hypothesized may be related to the increased context-sensitive half-life in this population. My takeaway from these findings is excluding times of drug shortage, fentanyl should be used over morphine for anagol sedation of mechanically ventilated patients in the ICU, especially in patients with renal dysfunction. It's nice to have a, a study to back, I think, what all of us feel deep down in our hearts of uh, fentanyl being a preferred uh, opiate uh, to morphine. And I like that you put the caveat that I feel like uh, we need as like a disclaimer over everything when drug shortages are not, are not happening, right? Because in the drug shortage era, if morphine's the only opioid you have, guess what? That's probably what we're going to be using. And so, um, you know, the 
the the era of drug shortages has made this a little bit more challenging. Um, but I love that we that we have actually um, trial and research published research data from this analgesic trial to really support that fentanyl not only is pharmacokinetically a a better agent, but that we actually have improved outcomes, which is you know one of the things we're always looking for here. Now, when we're talking about PAD and sedation, right? We're, we're a lot of times we're talking about the depth of sedation. So, Andy, for your next trial, let's kind of talk about one of our, I guess you'd say, mantras of sedation, and let's see if that if that holds true or not. Yeah, definitely. Uh, this is definitely hits home with the you know ongoing COVID nineteen pandemic. Uh, but critical care clinicians have been faced more often with providing increased sedative dosing to maintain ventilator synchrony and providing lung protective ventilation for patients with acute respiratory distress syndrome, or ARDS. In practice, deeper sedation has been assumed to suppress spontaneous respiratory effort. In this article from our pharmacy front of the pod, Dr. Amy Zerba and Dr. Katrina Derry published this awesome paper. I think this is a must-read for anyone practicing in this area. The status quo was definitely challenged uh, by this evaluation of assessing uh, respiratory drive the association of respiratory drive and sedative death um, while looking at ventilator-free days and acute respiratory failure. It was a prospective cohort study of critically ill adults receiving, or sorry, receiving invasive ventilation for no more than 36 hours before enrollment. Respiratory drive was measured via the pressure at 0.1 seconds, which is the change in airway pressure during a brief airway occlusion at the start of a patient's inspiratory effort. A measurement of zero indicates no respiratory drive, while higher scores correlate with increased respiratory drive. The pressure at 0.1 seconds was measured every 12 hours for three days. Sedation depth was evaluated using the Richmond Agitation Sedation Scale, or RAS. In evaluating the association between sedation depth, ventilator-free days, and respiratory drive, it was found that 18 of the 20 highest p-values were observed in patients I'm sorry, that stands for the pressure at 0.1 seconds, was observed in the patient with a uh, RAS score of negative 3 to 5, representing, as we know, patients that are uh, moderately and then on the end of negative 5, very much so deeply sedated. Additionally, in our cross-sectional analysis, RAS was not correlated with pressure at 0.1 seconds at any time during evaluation. This study challenges the benefit of using sedatives and analgesics to suppress respiratory drive given the known risks of deep sedation on clinical outcomes. Extremes in respiratory drive, low or high, were associated with increased time on the ventilator. This third study further opens the door into studying if respiratory drive can be used to guide clinical decision-making to improve clinical outcomes. For example, just a scenario here that this can maybe be applied in, the decision to decrease sedative and analgetic dosing in a patient not achieving desired respiratory suppression where we know the harm of increasing sedation may just cause further delirium. And this might be an opportunity to intervene uh, with something with, with further data on this. Further research is needed to assess re- if respiratory drive uh, is possible to guide clinical decision-making, although the results of this paper suggest a discordance definitely between sedation depth and respiratory drive. It seems like a very cool idea, and I'm looking forward to seeing more on this in this space soon, Nick. Yeah, what a what an awesome study. Um, the I I can't imagine the the work that went into like the 
the development of this, you know, looking at the the P.01 and the change in pressure and things. I mean, this is just a, a really well done study. Um, and whenever there's studies that challenge what we've always done, right, the way that we've kind of always done it, um, I really love those. And so um, the idea that more is not always better, even for our really acutely ill from a respiratory standpoint. Um, I think this is, like you said, it definitely hypothesis generating, Andy, but I think that there's definitely going to be more to come here as, you know, we keep looking into our sedation management and knowing that even in our sickest of the sick, targeting that RAS of negative five, meaning completely unresponsive is probably not the way to do it. Um, to help our patients. Um, and then lastly, I think a lot of us have been involved, especially for our, our um, in-practice clinicians in creating protocols one way or another. And I think sometimes as we're going through 800 committees, we may wonder, is this really worth it? And Andy, give us a, talk about this last study that really shined light on the fact that, yes, it does. Yeah, and this study by Fish. Uh, and colleagues described their five-year outcomes after implementation of a multidisciplinary ICU pain, agitation, and delirium protocol based off the 2013 Society of Critical Care Medicine PAD guidelines. The major areas of emphasis within this protocol were use of PRN boluses of analgesia and sedatives prior to starting continuous infusion, use of analgol sedation, goal of light sedation targeting a RASC, RAS of negative one to one in a majority of patients, and use of propofol over midazolam continuous infusion, in addition to implementation of the CPOT score for assessing pain. The implementation of this protocol was associated with improvements in patient outcomes, including a reduction in ventilator days, ICU and hospital length of stay, while also reducing in-hospital costs, so it went at both ends. That was sustained over this five-year study period. Even though the Apache 4 scores increased over time uh, at this institution, the associated length of stay decreased, which was the main driver of cost savings, which, as the authors point out, may underestimate true cost saving potential. As a young clinician, it is very exciting once again to see how multidisciplinary efforts in cre creating institutional protocols can improve patients' outcomes in the management of PAD, and to be a part of these efforts daily during rounds uh, as a resident and then also in my future practice. I love this. This feels like a you know, a lot of our hard work um, that that we do right in the background as pharmacists of helping getting protocols. So we're helping patients that, you know, we might not even be directly involved with their care, you know, seeing this um, published that that can create such a massive change um, in patient outcomes and how they do, how long they're in the hospital and things, I think is uh, just shows how important some of that work is. Um, and when we, you know, we might be debating why we're doing it in things, trials like this uh, really help reinforce that. So um, awesome job to, to all those involved, including one of my, my previous coworkers, Jared Baxa there. So shout out to him. Okay. Um, so we went from our ventilator blues phase here. Now, one thing that I, um, was hoping to, to bring up, there was another study that I just wanted to highlight here, and it was published in the American Journal of Emergency Medicine. And it has Brian Hayes as an author who, for those in the ED or the tox world, that name's instantly associated with all things awesome. Um, and this study was called Sedate, and it basically looked at the effect of 
abuse disorders, so patients who have issues with substance abuse, and the efficacy of our sedation. Um, and basically what they found, although there's there's plenty of possible bias in things, is that they found that we may not need to preemptively adjust or give more aggressive doses to these patients, that we can maybe start with with what we do for, for other patients um, and, and go up. So they they included um, gosh over twenty five over twenty seven hundred sedations. So they included a lot of patients here. So um, just something to kind of tuck in our minds as this is uh, becoming, I think, more and more common for our ED colleagues here. Okay, Callie, come on back here because I think we're going to go into the lost in my mind section or our neuro um, articles here. So Callie, what kind of publications did we have from a neuro perspective? Yeah, so we wouldn't have a neuro section if we didn't address some status epilepticus here. So mm -hmm. the first study we're going to look at is looking at dose and route of pre-hospital treatment with benzodiazepines for status epilepticus. And I know our colleagues who work in the ED and neurocritical care units can attest to the fact that benzos are commonly underdosed when used for the treatment of status. And published research supports this finding as well which is understandable when we think about the high doses that are recommended for emergent treatment of status. The first, um, the current first-line treatment options include our intramuscular option, or midazolam, at 10 milligrams, and for those with IV access, lorazepam at 0.1 mg per kg with a max of 4 milligrams, or diazepam at 0.15 to 0.2 mg per kg with a max of 10 milligrams may be given. This study used data from an EHR used by approximately 5% of the EMS services in the U.S. And investigators' goal was to assess concordance with the guidelines in terms of three things. The selected dose, route of administration, and dose-route combination. So for midazolam, only 7% of patients received a 10 milligram dose, and a third received it intramuscularly. When dose and route were both assessed, a whopping 4% of patients received the guideline recommended 10 milligram IM injection, with 92% of patients receiving 5 milligrams or less. And for Ativan, only 3% of patients were given 4 milligrams, leaving over 96% who were underdosed for status. And dose selection for diazepam was slightly better, with 15% of patients receiving between 6 and 10 milligrams. Now, I expected there, be, there to be a large percentage of underdosing, but I was surprised to see such high rates in the study. While the study didn't assess rates of successful cessation of seizures resulting from the administration of these doses and only represents 5% of EMS services in the U.S., I still think these are important findings. We all know that protocols that we have at our institutions allow us to provide safe, timely, and evidence-based care to our patients, and this study highlights another setting where protocols can either be instituted or modified in order to improve concordance with guideline recommendations in the pre-hospital setting, especially in the treatment of status. You know, we have evidence that we underdose most of our benzos for status epilepticus in the hospital. Um, but seeing that when we think of our, our pre-arrival, like our EMS colleagues in treatment here, the fact that if we're looking at all the Versed treatments and only 4% of them got our 10 milligrams IM, which is probably has arguably the best data of any of our treatments, uh, that was eye-opening. I completely agree. 
Um, I think this just shines a light of just further education, maybe looking at EMS protocols, because sometimes, right, they, they have for safety reasons, they have to have specific um, interventions or initiatives that, um, you know, might be a little different than what guidelines recommend. So maybe we need to go back and, and look at some of those. But I mean, this was, you know, they looked at a whole lot of, of rides and patients and to see that low number, um, in all it across the board, it wasn't like it was just Ativan or just volume, just Versed. So, uh, we definitely have ways to go with our status epilepticus dosing, and it turns out not just in the hospital, but also before they get here. Um, along this same realm, one of the interesting studies that came out from our our um, British and international colleagues, this was actually published in Paris, you know, they were looking at the sheer amount of drug interactions with our status epile- epilepticus patients and finding that, you know, not only do they just have drug, about a third of them have drug-drug interactions just between the anti-seizure drugs themselves, but anywhere from 20 to 50% of them have interactions with just the things we do for our usual ICU care when they're in the hospital. So um, I think all of us as pharmacists know we have to um, think a little bit more carefully, especially with our status epilepticus patients and having all those medicines that have um, conflicting PK, PD, and metabolism types of things. Just another study reinforcing um, the the need to look closely and run some of those things through Lexicomp or Micromedics, whatever your your preferred agent is, um, and and be sure that uh, patients are getting the the safest treatments possible here. Um, so let's go ahead and and stick in the in the neuro realm here and let's talk about a, a unique drug for a complication that we really work to try to protect in some of our neuro patients. Yeah, so moving into the management of aneurysmal subarachnoid hemorrhage or SAH, um, the Milry spasm study looked at IV milrinone use in this patient population. So cerebral vasospasm is arterial narrowing that can lead to brain ischemia in the days following aneurysm and contributes to poor outcomes. Maintaining adequate systemic pressures, endovascular angioplasty, and prophylactic nemodipine are current standards for managing patients post-aneurysmal SAH. IV is a PDE3 inhibitor, which is used as a positive inotrope, primarily in cardiac settings, but it also has some cerebral vasodilatory properties, and there are case theories supporting its use for preventing cerebral vasospasm. So this was an observational pre-post study comparing patients with aneurysmal SAH who received melanone infusion at a starting dose of 0.5 mics per kg per minute and titrated to a maximum of 1.5 mics per kg per minute as MAP allowed with those who didn't receive melanone. And all patients received induced hypertension to maintain a MAP of 100 to 120 along with nemodipine. The 53 patients in the control group were compared with 41 who received IV milrinone. And after adjustment for covariates, patients who received IV milrinone were less likely to have functional disability at six months, a lower likelihood of vasospasm-related brain infarction, and fewer required endovascular angioplasty. That said, milrinone use has several limitations as more patients experience cerebral thought wasting, and ultimately almost a third of patients had a discontinuous use due to intolerability, with the most common reason being inability to maintain those MAP goals. 
Notably, the author reports several limitations to the study, but the findings are certainly hypothesis generating. An additional study showing acceptable safety of milrinone in this setting could justify the development of a randomized controlled trial. We have so much with prophylaxis and trying to prevent these um, cerebral vasospasms. It's nice to see some more evidence for treatment and evidence for treatment that is not intraventricular administration of things, right? That things that we can do with just simple lines and, and infusions through IV pumps and things. So yeah, a really, a really good study and definitely more to come from that perspective. I, uh, I, I believe. All right. So last but not least in our neuro section, we're going to look at the safety and efficacy of 23.4% sodium chloride administered via peripheral venous access. This was published in Neurocritical Care by Dr. David Hensler and colleagues at the University of Michigan. So hypertonic saline fluids are high alert medications with notable safety concerns surrounding their use. We have more data for peripheral administration of 3% hypertonic saline, but 23.4% has even higher osmolarity and safety concerns remain regarding extravasation and its ability to be given via peripheral IV. So this was a retrospective cohort study comparing efficacy and safety outcomes after the University of Michigan revised its 23.4% policy to allow for administration via peripheral access for impending herniation to prevent delays in care when central venous access was not available. So getting into the findings of the study, investigators identified 242 central and 57 peripheral administrations of 23.4% resulting in about 300 total administrations. Although one patient experienced extravasation, no occurrences of necrosis or visible tissue injury at the site of administration were documented in any patient who received 23.4% peripherally. There were also no instances of hemolysis or osmotic demyelination. There was no difference between groups and other safety outcomes, such as pulmonary edema and hypotension. And from an efficacy standpoint, 19% of patients had resolution of signs of herniation after central administration, compared with 24% who received the 23.4% peripherally. Although investigators were focused on collecting laboratory and physiologic values related to safety and efficacy, I would have loved to see a description of the time to administration since that is the compelling reason for, for peripheral over central administration. But the findings of these studies show that peripheral administration of 23.4% appears to be safe and just as effective as central administration, and protocols may be adjusted to allow for more rapid administration of hypertonic saline in the setting of impending herniation without having to delay care to obtain central access. I, I think that, um, you know, a lot of us from pharmacy school and things get scared of 23.4% or, or uh, what is commonly called as the bullet um, in the neuro world. But I think a lot of times we hear about how it's high osmolarity and how you need a central line and the risks are high. Um, but in patients, right, who are at very high risk of herniation, being able to get that and give it right away um, and time to treatment is so important. I agree, Callie. I would have liked to see the time to treatment here, but I like that we're seeing more and more evidence that, hey, central line's preferred, but if the rubber hits the road and we need to do it peripherally, we're probably okay to do that. The other thing that stood out to me uh, greatly in this study was that their protocol had this being pushed over 10 minutes 
So shout out to those nurses at the University of Michigan, because I think a three minute push feels like eternity. I can't imagine trying to do 10 minutes. So that's extremely impressive. Kudos to everyone there and to the to the nurse who's just slowly at the bedside, just ever so slightly moving that um, 30 cc syringe here. <laughs> um the only other study that I was uh, hoping to highlight here um, was looking at a, a fixed-dose PCC for a warfarin reversal for patients with intracranial hemorrhage. So the lead author here is Scott Dietrich, who is he uh, came on to do PCCs for PharmDs with us. We're going to have to bring him back here eventually, but him and Megan Reck were both involved with this study. It's a really awesome study. And basically what they found is hey, if you do a higher fixed dose, you know, maybe about 2,000 units, it can be just as effective as our classic weight-based dose. So as we're getting more and more studies here, um, we're finding that maybe fixed dose for almost all indications, maybe a little bit of varying doses there, but that might be appropriate rather than our our weight-based, you know, somewhere between 25 to 50 uh, units per kilo there. Boy, that was an, an awesome between PAD and neuro. That was a really good, really good brain couple months here. So, um, Andy, let's go Elton John on us. Don't go breaking my heart um, and bring up some. There were also some really good cardiology studies here. So let's uh, let's bring them back in. The first one I'd like to highlight is um, was, uh, published in Pharmacotherapy this last fall and uh, review of therapeutics uh, highlighting the optimization of anticoagulation for patients receiving. Uh, and Pella support. The article provides an excellent summary of recommendations from eight clinical pharmacists with practice expertise in anticoagulation and mechanical circulatory support, providing recommendations around four themes related to anticoagulant patients treated with an Impella uh, device. This includes things as such as purge solution, systemic anticoagulation, monitoring, and the process of care for caring for these patients. This is a must-read for anyone who cares for patients with an Impella device, especially given the increased usage seen over the last four years for the management of cardiogenic shock. The article offers practical solutions in its 42 recommendations. The section on purge solution caught my eye the most. I enjoyed learning about how heparin's ionic charge contributes to the protection of the pump, in addition to the expanding research that supports a bicarb-based purge solution as a substitute to the gold standard heparin dextrose solution given it also has an ionic charge. Saline and direct thrombin inhibitors uh, should not be currently uh, used in purge solution and should be avoided due to a signal for harm. But the usage of bicarb-based purge solutions seems like an awesome alternative to dextrose-only solutions for patients who need to avoid heparin due to hit or a pork uh, allergy. Be sure to check out the full paper, but be sure not to purge it all at once. <laughs> I mean, this is this is a who's who. If you're involved or have looked into cardiology literature, I mean, you have you have Craig Beavers, who I'm extremely biased and I think is one of the absolute best. Um, Rob D. I'm going to butcher this name. I'm so sorry. D. Domenico, Stephen Dunn, Jenna Foster Cox, Toby Trujillo, Douglas Jennings, like just who's who of of anticoagulation, cardiology, and mechanical circulatory support. So it's definitely a zip drive um, study, something for you to save away. Um, and really, I, there's a lot of tables for how to monitor, um, what to do if they have hit, what are goals, all these different things. So an awesome study. Now, something that I don't like about it, now this is nothing that the authors did. So when you're saving PDFs from pharmacotherapy now, the whole first page is an advertisement. 
Now, I get that we're putting ads on jerseys and sports and we're getting more and more in everything we do, but I hate this. So a pharmacotherapy, ACP, I doubt you're listening, but uh, I'm against the whole first page being an ad in all the PDFs that I save here. But still an awesome article, especially for our impella patients, which um, it can be very complicated um, for those, especially who haven't had a whole lot of experience with it. All right, soapbox done here. So Andy, let's talk about um, HIT and talking about different scores to help truly rule in or rule out this uh, classic complication. Yeah, definitely. A little bit of background. Uh, Thrombocytopenia commonly occurs after cardiac surgery, especially in those that go on bypass. Heparin is commonly given to these patients intra or postoperatively, and of course, heparin-induced thrombocytopenia often needs to be considered on the differential for these patients if they have thrombocytopenia after surgery. Several scores, such as the 4T score, have been developed to exclude HIT in patients with thrombocytopenia, but these scores have a high level of inaccuracy in the cardiac surgery population. This study was a nested case control study of patients with HIT to assess the validity and compare the modified 4T score and the Leo Lee Louette scores for HIT screening in the cardiac surgery population. In the study, 18 HIT cases were matched in a one to three manner with non HIT patients based on baseline characteristics at time of HIT assay ordering. Performance of each test was shown to be modest in ability to discriminate between HIT negative and positive patients. Based on these findings, both the modified 4T and the Leo Liet score uh, test may be helpful in detecting patients with or without HIT. The modified 4T had a higher specificity with 91%, uh, helpful to rule in HIT, while the other test had a higher sensitivity of 94%, uh, which would be helpful for ruling out HIT. Given the dangers of missing a diagnosis of HIT, the Leo Lee-Louette score may be more helpful to rule out disease, although this would require further validation given the small sample size in this study, only including 18 patients with HIT. Hopefully there's more to come on how to best to use these scores in the future, given how difficult it can be to rule out HIT in the cardiac surgery population without checking the PF4. Yeah, trying to rule in or rule out HIT and specifically the cardiac surgery population can sometimes feel like an exercise in futility um, with how um, nonspecific it can be in our false our false positives uh, with the ELISA screen. So I think the going into the um, ability to have other scores to help clarify whether we should be sending that HIT panel and starting our DTIs and all those things, I, I think is I really well done um, for all those involved. Um, and hopefully we get a little more to come to come from that perspective. Now let's bust into, I guess we'd say Andy, we could say soft call related to cardiology here, but ultimately it still affects the heart and we're popping in some bicarb on the pod. So take us away. Yeah, I, I love rhythm. So I had to try to drag this one in as much as possible. <laughs> uh, but the study looked at the effect of sodium bicarbonate on hyperkalemia. Uh, of course, hyperkalemia is a dangerous and potentially life-threatening electrolyte disorder that can lead to cardiac dysrhythmias. This study by pharmacist Dr. Gang et al., sought to assess the potassium reduction potential of sodium bicarbonate as part of the treatment of hyperkalemia in the ED. Patients with a potassium greater than 5.4 millimoles per liter who received IV insulin in the ED were grouped to an IV insulin plus bicarb group or IV insulin alone. 
In the primary objective, comparing the absolute risk or sorry, absolute reduction in serum potassium, the 38 patients in the bicarb plus insulin group had no difference in the potassium reduction uh, seen at one versus 0.9 millimoles that was seen in the 68 patients in the insulin alone group. Of note, the combination group did have a higher K at baseline. A few limitations of this study was that it did not assess the use of bicarb in an acidotic patient, nor did it assess clinical outcomes, which would be good areas for future research. Although the study had a small sample size, it supports the groundwork of a larger study to further clarify the ongoing role of bicarb as an adjunctive to insulin in the management of hyper-K. This study supports my previous and current practice, where I tend to focus on the basics uh, with calcium, insulin, and diuresis for the management of hyperkalemia. Although bicarb will likely remain a staple in the ED hyper-K order sets, these results make you subtract a few brownie points from bicarb, Nick. I have been on the bicarb does nothing for hyperkalemia train for a minute. I don't think I've been the conductor, but I've definitely been on. I'm not in the caboose. I'm on one of the early trains here. It's one of those like it's not a hill I'm going to die on, but I'm glad to see that we actually have a study that I can say that it truly did almost nothing to our potassium levels here. So I love that. Tox people, earmuffs, maybe bicarb isn't the answer for everything. I, I can't believe that's, that we're actually saying that here. Um, but this this study might uh, kind of peel back the, uh, the evidence for uh, our hyper-K cocktail. The only other quick study I wanted to, to pop and put everyone uh, aware of, it's probably a zip drive worthy study here, is uh, the JAMA had an awesome review on uh, cardiogenic shock after acute MI. It has a figure that has really beautiful pictures, especially if you have learners or you are a learner, that talks about you know all the pathways and, and physiologic things that are happening in cardiogenic shock. And then the thing that I love is that there's a table that literally goes through the professional society guidelines and tells you exactly what they recommend, what the level of evidence is, when it was published. So um, saving all of us some some searching and things is something that I always appreciate. So uh, I thought that was a really a really good study that I wanted to highlight there. All right, Callie, let's close us out here by going to the front of the fridge and shouting out some of our awesome pharmacists because there was no shortage of amazing studies um, in November and December of last year. Absolutely. It was honestly very hard to decide on three to share with you guys today. But if we lost you for a second because cardiology is not your thing, you're going to want to zone back in and pay attention to this study. <laughs> Dr. Calvin Deep and other pharmacy colleagues at Stanford Healthcare may have identified a way to get vancomycin discontinued one day sooner, that's right, and save you from writing one more consult note. This was a retrospective quasi-experimental study comparing outcomes before and after a pharmacist-driven protocol implementation and included 418 patients who were admitted to the ICU and started on empiric vancomycin for suspected pneumonia. In 2018, Stanford Healthcare switched their MRSA protocol, which had a 48-hour turnaround time, to this pharmacist-driven protocol with MRSA nasal PCR screens with a turnaround time of just four to six hours. So under this protocol, pharmacists enter an order for MRSA nasal PCR upon receipt of an IV vancomycin order with an indication for empiric pneumonia. Now for the results that you've all been waiting for, the median vancomycin duration was about 2.6 days in the pre-group versus 1.4 days in the post-protocol group, saving about an entire day of therapy. 
Other notable outcomes were a lower rate of AKI and fewer vancomycin levels obtained in the post-protocol group, which is music to the ears of PharmDs everywhere. The median number of vancomycin levels, including random and trough, obtained per patient was one in the pre-group and zero in the post-group, with over half of patients not having a level drawn at all. This was despite implementation of AUC-based vancomycin dosing, which we would expect to result in more levels being drawn. And in terms of potential negative outcomes, rates of in-hospital mortality, ICU readmission due to pneumonia, and resumption of banco therapy were no different between groups. Ultimately, this study highlights another role for pharmacists to play in antimicrobial stewardship and providing excellent care to our patients, as well as saving costs and complications to our institutions and patients, and maybe saving ourselves one additional note. That sound you heard faintly in the background was all the pharmacists listening, singing hallelujah um, at another study that supports us using MRSA swabs to help de-escalate. You know, not only was that an awesome study, um, but, you know, in the same time frame, there was a pharmacist-driven uh, MRSA PCR screening and, and looking at how that impacted um vancomycin use in hospitalized patients with pneumonia. Um, and I will just say it significantly and safely reduced vancomycin use. Um, and then shout out to, uh, Kristen Pachulo here, the, the better half of one of my, of one of my, uh, mentors and I wouldn't be here without him, Chris Pachulo. So I love seeing, um, some, some, uh, articles getting published from, from people that have helped me out. But all that to say, these two studies just fall in line with a Rolodex of studies that MRSA PCRs are really good um, tools to help safely de-escalate um, vancomycin coverage, especially in pneumonia, but it's also coming for, for other kind of infections as well. Um, so, uh, Callie, we actually might have to go back a little bit to the heart here and talk a little bit about hemodynamics and our dosing of vasopressin. So take it away. All right, so next I wanted to give credit to Dr. Casey Dubraca and other pharmacy colleagues at Barnes Jewish who assessed vasopressin dose on hemodynamic response in patients with a BMI greater than or equal to 30 in septic shock. So vasopressin at a fixed dose of 0.03 to 0.04 units per minute is our adjunctive agent of choice in septic shock after crystalloid bolus and norepinephrine if unable to meet MAP goals. A post-hoc analysis of the VAST trial has shown that vasopressin concentrations were significantly lower in patients with BMI greater than or equal to 25 compared with those with a BMI less than 25. And given PK considerations, obese patients may receive suboptimal vasopressin exposure at standard fixed doses. This was a single-center retrospective cohort study assessing 136 patients who received vasopressin at a dose of 0.04 units per minute or less, and 46 patients who received a dose higher than standard with a median of 0.08 units per minute. And the primary outcome was change in norepinephrine equivalent dose at six hours after start of infusion. Investigators saw no difference in percentage change in norepi dose in patients with a BMI greater than or equal to 30 following receipt of standard dose compared with higher dose vasopressin. There's also no difference in the number of patients achieving the MAP goal at 3, 6, or 12 hours after vasopressin initiation. In terms of clinical outcomes, receipt of high-dose vasopressin was associated with a longer duration of shock and longer length of stay. So this was the first evaluation of vasopressin dose response 
to limit inclusion to patients with BMI greater than or equal to 30. Ultimately, there was no difference in norepi requirements and a potential for increased length of stay or duration of shock with higher doses of vasopressin compared to standard. So maybe more isn't necessarily better in order to achieve our MAP goals in patients with shock and a BMI of 30 or greater when it comes to vasopressin. Yeah, a, a really good study. And you mentioned, right, this study exclusively included patients that had a BMI greater than 30. So that's what makes this unique and not kind of another uh, kind of me too study. And it's, it's, it's nice and reassuring. Because I think in theory, we think that maybe we need do need to give more to patients, right, who are sometimes double the body weight of of the same patient receiving 0.03 or 0.04 units per minute. So it's it's nice that we, we're getting more and more evidence that, that our standard dosing regimen, no matter what their size is, is probably okay. And it's really just about kind of um, bringing up those, giving them vasopressin and repleting those stores to help them respond to some of their catecholamines and things better. Absolutely. Um, all right, Callie, close us out here. So our last pharmacist shout out goes to Dr. Andrew Gerald and colleagues at Johns Hopkins who looked at the implementation of a five item brief alcohol withdrawal scale or BOS for treatment of severe alcohol withdrawal in the ICU. So alcohol withdrawal can be either a reason for hospital admission or developed while a patient is in house with us. And our CYAR is the most used assessment tool for symptom-triggered benzodiazepine protocols. Some noteworthy limitations of CWA are that it is a 10-item score and relies on many subjective symptoms and cannot be used in patients who are delirious or unable to communicate, which impacts its utility in the ICU setting. So the BOS scale was developed in 2016 and encompasses five objective items that do not rely on patient report. So the ICU BOS protocol was implemented at Johns Hopkins Hospital in 2016, and this re retrospective study identified about 300 admissions where this protocol was used. 17% of patients had severe withdrawal while being managed on this protocol, although most pa patients managed with BOS did not develop severe withdrawal. And a little over half of those with severe withdrawal were treated with protocol only, with the remainder receiving additional benzos or the addition of propofol or dexmedetomidine which were outside of the protocol. So despite BOS depending more on patient observation than on patient report, which theoretically should be more suitable for use in critically ill patients, 70% of patients managed on this protocol still developed severe withdrawal and almost half of those patients received agents outside of the protocol to be treated. This study demonstrated that the implementation of BOS assessment tool is feasible and there's still opportunity for investigators to refine and develop protocols to standardize the treatment of patients who are critically ill and at risk for severe alcohol withdrawal. Yeah, if you think about it, right, um, the CWA, especially, you know, our most severe alcohol withdrawal patients, they get intubated, you know, ultimately our goal is to prevent that. But there's so much subjective things in that scoring system. If, if, if you've ever tried to talk to a delirious uh, alcohol withdrawal patient, trying to fill out that CWA score sometimes feels like an exercise in futility. So having more objective scales to help use for these sick patients is, is awesome. And I and I love that uh, one of the pharmacists up at Hopkins was really involved, Andrew Gerald, with the creation um, and kind of implementation and following of these protocols is, is really awesome. 
Um, the last, what I wanted to kind of close out with um, in terms of our studies of the the front of the fridge here is just an article that I truly, truly cannot recommend more. Um, it's called Kindling the Fire, The Power of Mentorship. So it was published in AJHP. Um, it is uh, written by many of the members of the UGA C3. Many of these names will sound familiar to Friends of the Pod. Andrea Sikora Newsom, Susan Smith, Anthony Hawkins, Trisha Brennan, Chris Bland, and then Brian Murray from from UNC Chapel Hill. Um, he they go into all of the aspects that make a mentor mentee relationship not only so important, but really how to make it thrive. And anyone who has had really good mentorship, you understand the need to pay it forward and help with others. And for those who are mentees and looking for mentorship, this kind of goes into the fact that it, it talks about how do we make this relationship good for both individuals, make it fruitful and help all of us grow, you know, balancing things like beneficence, justice, autonomy, truthfulness, and all those things. So again, I, I don't have time to go through all these. I really wish I could just frankly read this article for for everybody. It's so good, but definitely, um, definitely please download this and, and read it. I think I'll, I'll leave with the quote that stands out to me is a mind is a fire to be kindled, not a vessel to be filled. So I really, really love that. Um, and kind of on that same thread here, right? We're talking about the power of mentorship. So I mentioned in the beginning here when we were doing intros that, um, Callie and Andy both, um, early committed and are, and are staying for PGY2s, which is, is awesome and a testament to their hard work um, and everything that they've done in their professional careers. But I was hoping, and Callie, we'll start with you and, and end with Andy. If you if you had like one piece of, of advice or, or a message, if there's, you know, learners or other residents who, who are listening, you know, what's something that, that you can maybe pass on that helped you um, kind of achieve, obviously, your all's goal of, of getting a PGY2? Why too? Yeah, so I think one bit of advice that kind of shifted for me as a student, I was kind of looking at different specialty areas and things based on topics that were within those areas and what really made the decision clear for me in terms of where I wanted to do PGY2 and especially in what specialty I wanted to do PGY2. It really came down to what aspects of what we do as pharmacists are going to be most utilized in that specialty in terms of the practice that we have. And so I think identifying mentors who are going to help kind of utilize them as sounding boards um, to help kind of figure out what is most important to you for your second year. Um, it's kind of the best advice that I have and identifying what specific parts and not just the topics of special of certain specialties are most um, aligned with your own professional goals and passions in terms of pharmacy. Yeah, I'd say my my biggest piece of advice is go into the year with an open mind. Sometimes feel like you have to have all your ducks in a row right at the very start of residency in July, but uh, th those first couple months is a great time just to meet uh, a lot of different pharmacists in different areas of practice. And as Kelly had mentioned, just find what you're interested in in those subspecialty areas or just different stuff, and that'll help guide that passion where you'll kind of know just based off what gets you excited to read about what kind of area you're hoping to go move in for practice. Of course, it's uh, beneficial to have maybe a few of those rotations and areas that you're interested in. So try to get that worked out with your program director, but don't be worried if you don't have those in time and uh, always just have that, that open mind, I think, with the process. And know too, if you don't early commit somewhere, there's plenty of time 
to continue to look within your institution and also elsewhere for that second year of training. So, of course, it feels very stressful around that October time where all the other deadlines are hitting you as a resident. Uh, but just know you've got a, a good support system within your program and uh, hopefully some awesome co-residents too uh, to talk those things out that just help guide your, your interest areas. Really, really well said. Um, I really like the the point that you said of like, you know, um, it, it's very easy to compare yourself to others and like look at people who have, you know, maybe early committed, right? And maybe you're going through the scramble or maybe it didn't work out. And the, the biggest advice, I, the two biggest piece of advice I would say is like, um, it's a journey. So just because it didn't end the way you think it did doesn't mean it's a failure or anything like that. Um, so just like you said, Andy, coming in with an open mind is a really good idea. And the other thing is use your resources, right? If you have mentors or things, you know, everyone has heard the, the phrase pharmacy is a small world, but it's extremely true. So reach out to people and, and use some of those resources to help you. But um, Callie and Andy, very well said. Um, and Awesome job joining us today, um, doing just an incredible review of a laundry list of articles here that were published in in November and December um, of 2021. Now, you can find our awesome guest host on Twitter. So Andy is at Jadis, J-A-T-I-S underscore R-X, and Callie is at Callie Brooks. I'm always fascinated when people can get their just first names. That's amazing. Shout out to Callie here. But um, thank you both so much. Uh, people are going to learn so much and we really appreciate all of your time and work um, coming on the pod. It, it certainly doesn't go unnoticed. Thank you so much, Nick. It was a lot of fun and definitely want to give a plug for any of those students or residents out there that are considering joining the episode or uh, participating in this. Uh, definitely feel free to reach out to me if you got any questions. It's a great, awesome way to, to practice and meet people within the world of pharmacy. So thank you, Nick, for giving us uh, learners an opportunity to be involved in the podcast. Yeah, thanks, Nick, so much for letting us be a part of this. I know I was so excited when you kind of offered up this opportunity. Uh, and it's been a real blast um, reviewing literature and talking about it with you guys. That's awesome. Loved working with you all both. Absolutely. It, the pleasure is all mine here. Um, and for friends of the pod, remember, uh, we're on, I'm on Twitter at pharmacy to dose, to dose, or via email pharmacy to dose at gmail.com. If you have episode ideas, guest ideas, what have you, um, again, we'll have the reference list in the show notes that talks about the art that, uh, includes the references for the articles we discussed. Um, check out the website pharmacy And until next time, I'm Nick Peters, and this is pharmacy to dose, the critical care podcast.